Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Father, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me again. We're going to move into episode one of our series. We premiered episode zero in which Father and I talked about the introduction in chapter one of this book. Father and I were talking a little bit before the show started just about how fascinating it is that our faith always has new mysteries for us. And we're, we're going to be sharing some of those with you today. We'll be talking about, uh, as, uh, in addition to what you heard in the zero episode, we're going to be moving forward among chapters two, three, and four. We're going to start uh, in chapter three, actually, Father. Um, early on, Monsignor Aegeus, who's, who's the author of this book, points out that our, our Lord could have given the church another form of government, which is, which is an interesting thought. But that being said, it's important to look at the divine design of the government of the church, that, that our Lord set it up this way on purpose. It's not something arbitrary. You know, different countries of the world have different forms of government that work to, to various uh, degrees of effectiveness. And the church has never taken a stance on whether you should have this form of government or that. But as far as the church's form of government, well, it was set up by our Lord. So it's set up to work perfectly. That's right, because that's, I mean, our Lord, why would our Lord set up something that was uh, imperfect or that was not uh, uh, meant, of course, to project and to protect uh, the way to the most important thing for us is our salvation. And so certainly even that of the uh, governmental aspect of, of the church, of how it's set up I mean, a church, our Lord would not leave even that unaided or leave that un, you know, unknown to us to kind of figure things out. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Monsignor does uh, point out in chapter three, in the very, in the very introductory chapter, he says, which is, is key, he says that there's two really essential characteristics in the church, and one is authority and the other is obedience. Um, and so, you know, when you have authority, of course, that's given to us by Christ himself. And and uh, and so we are then must be obedient to that because we trust that. So you're right. I mean, I, I, he put that very perfectly in regards to that. Our Lord certainly could have uh, formed a different governmental style of government uh, structure of the church. I mean, he could have done something better or better. Or, I mean, in, our, in some people's mind, they can say, well, he could have done it better or he could have done something. Well, uh, that's you know, not trusting in what our Lord has put forth, uh, because again, our Lord is God and he put forth what is perfect and the church is perfect uh, for us to, uh, to use. And Monsignor very, makes it uh, clear. He says, you know, it, it must not change now. I mean, why, why would somebody want to uh, upturn the apple cart and trying to change the things? That, and, I mean, that's the, I think he was alluding to, and, and of course he goes on later to explain in the book too of, there's always been impious people, always been heretics, always been those who are revolutionaries who are trying to change the ch uh, to fit either the world or their own designs, or um, of course the devil's behind it all. But um, so, you know, it's 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 quite simple how our, actually our Lord had set things up, and we must trust in that. And I think that that's part of our devotion to the person of the Pope and the Holy Father. Um, Father, I think that that link between our Lord and the, and the papacy, uh, that, that deep love that's embedded in any Catholic of the papacy, I think that's maybe one of the most painful things for the set of a contest. You know, we're built to love the Pope. We're built to give him uh, his proper respect. Uh, you and I both know from our Novus Ordo days, you know, uh, of, uh, oh, the Holy Father this and the Holy Father that. And, and unfortunately, when set of a contest say Holy Father, we're talking about someone who's been dead for a very long time. Um, right. And I think that that's part of the government as well, is that our Lord in selecting a vicar allows us to love his person through his, uh, his designated um, leaders. Um, to that end, can you clarify, Monsignor Aegis talks about our Lord establishing perpetual apostolic succession. Can you clarify that for our listeners? What does that mean? Well, what that means uh, is, well, Monsignor goes in kind of point by point, uh, kind of elaborates on that. And basically he's reminding us that, you know, the apostles are teachers to all nations and the apostles are witnesses of Christ. They're 
infallible and they're perpetual witnesses. In other words, they are the official uh, witnesses uh, of Christ. And so they're appointed by Christ himself and to be infallible teachers and to the whole world and perpetual, perpetual witnesses to himself. And so um, our Lord uh, is with St. Peter and the other apostles as as represented now, of course, by the Bishop of Rome on the chair of Peter, um, and by all then the bishops of the Catholic world. And so in then the person of their successors, our Lord is with the apostles, which is then, of course, the succession then of bishops and priests who are in union with uh, the apostolic see, with union with our Lord. And so, you know, when uh, that's the, the perpetual... Um, extension, so to speak, or the perpetual apostolic succession. I mean, there's an unbroken line there. And it's something that, uh, you know, one, um, this is something too, that especially as said scientists is that, you know, we always get um, lambasted and labeled, you know, you're, you know, you're denying the perpetual apostolic succession. In other words, because you say that the uh, sea is vacant, uh, that, you know, you are denying that. And that's certainly not it at all. And, because they, they fail to recognize that, you know, when a true pope is in, in office and then he dies, then the seed is empty. So then does that mean that the, that the perpetual apostolic succession then is broken then or not? They would say, no, of course not. Well, so there's something more than in regards to just, in, in a sense, the living and breathing uh, man sitting in the chair. But it is, again... That, uh, that succession then of the apostles handed down from, the, from our Lord to the apostles, then down from the apostles to their successors, down through that. So there's a continual apostolic succession uh, of teachers and uh, for the church. And so that's, again, the, uh, a wonderful, um, I guess you can say, a, another wonderful meditation even really to think about uh, is to say that... Uh, all the bishops, true bishops now, um, can trace their lineage ultimately to one of the apostles. Um, and so there's that line that is an unbroken line. And, and so uh, that's quite uh, humbling when you think of that. Um, but there's a, there is a, a perpetualness in regards to the governmental aspect of the church as well. And it's beautiful too, Father, because if we think about it, it really can't be any other way. You know, we look at it as a dogma and, and we might think, okay, that's true. And I accept that, but it's really not possible for there to be anything other than perpetual apostolic succession, because at, at that point, you know, what would happen? Uh, so it's, it's a necessary, uh, an ongoing state. It's not just something that was, that was finished. And uh, Monsignor Aegeus gives us a couple scriptural um, quotes to, 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 to medit- meditate on. Um, the first is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, uh, chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, um, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. And from uh, the Gospel of St. John, uh, chapter 14, verse 16, and I'll ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. Can you uh, we, we're obviously, this isn't a scriptural exegesis show, Father, so we're not going to get too deep into this, but can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. Um, Montina does a good job in regards to that as well. He does point out the first thing when you look at those two scripture passages is that, you, uh, to, um, as he says, to understand the, the full import of these divine words, we must consider the persons to whom they were directed. And in other words, the, the power and the prerogatives which they might have on occasions obtained them from our Lord. And so talking about the apostles. And so if you look at the apostles, that they were the recipients of a new revelation, which was then to be completed by them and by nobody else. Um, and so, you know, that's in of itself, that is that uh, there's a, there's a specialness of course that is there. Um, but, in addition to that, is that each of them, the apostles, then had the authority over the universal church as pastors, as, as guardians of the faith. And then that authority, then their authority was subordinated or subordinate to Peter and in communion with Peter. 
and so uh, you know the apostles in other words when when um um we we consider those scripture passages is that you know we're we're confronted really with the grandioseness of what the apostles were given um what they the the responsibilities and duties uh that uh were given and and they had it was irregardless of any territorial limits i mean they they were basically their their new missions were the world <laughs> it was everywhere and so you know their commission was to teach all nations and um they had the the charism of truth they were promised uh, what they were promising conferred upon and so then and then the whole apostolic body in union and communion then with saint peter and then under peter so there's a, a unity right away um in, in, in that regards and so it, you know there's a uh when our, when he, he points to that reminder is uh, of the scripture passage that you know i'm with you uh all the days even to the consummation of the world and i mean it's just a reminder that there is something that is set up in the beginning with the apostles but yet has continued to endure um by the by the mandate of god and, and through his uh grace of course but that nonetheless is that you have um this work uh that is continued to this very day um the, the commission uh by um our lord uh to this very day for all these these uh, um, great uh, things which well of the faith um so in other words i mean we're we're not left as we mentioned before just you know on our own and just uh, to make things up as we go um is that it's set up for us and and so there is um that perpetual apostolic succession and again again re- resolves with the apostles who had set up then um with in union subordinate to saint peter and in union with saint peter uh, which is then of course now um the vicar of christ the, the bishop of rome the pope and so you know that's uh in fact Monsignor uses the words often in union with and communion with peter and subordinate to peter and so um you know we have the uh, it is through the the pope uh this is the the union then that we see of all of the government uh, aspect of the church of, of all the structures everything it's in the person of the pope um and in the person of saint peter's chair um the office of the papacy is why too is, is why it's a contest of course um you know again we get accused all the time of denying the papacy and denying and hating or whatever um but actually it's a contest because we're the only ones who actually love and uphold the papacy because no one else really does because they're they'll deny whatever who they claim the pope to be well we're just going to not listen to him due to that and that but that's not how our lord set things up and uh so you know that is uh something it's a reminder even though again we don't have a living breathing man as a pope here but we have the papacy um and it is with it is through that uh that is that uh, our Lord says, I will be with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. Um, and the Holy Ghost, of course, abides in that as well. So it is, it is again, when you read these things, and sometimes, it, for, especially when you read it, for some, you know, there are certain parts of the, of the book here that it can be a little bit technical for some, maybe if they read it, but yet, uh, Montina puts it in a, in a fairly clear light. And, and, but yet, it's like trying to, Sometimes uh, the magnitude and the breadth of it is, is trying to like uh, expound on uh, the Trinity in, in a, uh, a very uh, easy, understandable way for, for folks. And certainly we can do part of some of it, but yet there's a lot of things that are just in, you're just in awe of as you see uh, the hand of our Lord in the establishment of the church uh, of, of the faith. You know, something we, we never think about uh Father, is that while the apostles in many cases chose their own successors and made them bishops, they could they could not pass on everything. They they had received some some personal gifts from our Lord. What were some of those personal gifts received by the apostles that could not be passed on, and and why not? Well, you 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 kind of understand is that 
they were given uh, the apostles. They taught. Uh, yes, you're right. They taught and ordained others, and and uh, so uh, they um, had certain gifts that were given to them. And but there were certain things, and again, they just said were not passed along. And one of them was is that uh, they there was no new revelations uh, given uh, to the successors. In other words. The, all of Revelation, you know, ended with the death of the last apostle. Uh, and so they were the only ones who had the distinctness to have um, revelation uh, um, given to them. Uh, and, and so it's not as if then any of their successors, not even their very immediate successors, then could uh, give anything new, any new dogmas or doctrines uh, to the church. Um, so anything to do with revelations and new revelations ended then with the death of the apostles. And so um, their their successors, though, the apostles too as well, uh, their successors never said that their writings uh, um, were inspired. In other words, the apostles' writings were all inspired, I mean, inspired in regards to um, infallibility. So, you know, no one would dare to add, say, another word to scripture. Well, uh, I, um, I should retract that. I suppose someone, people do dare to it, um, like Martin Luther and things of that nature, but no one in their right minds, I should put, would dare to add anything or detract anything from scripture. From um, And that was written, of course, by the apostles, and so, or at least the uh, direct ones. And so, you know, the personal gifts of the apostles, you read it in scripture as well, that they had the gift of tongues. They uh, were pastors and doctors of the whole church. There was no, again, no um, jurisdiction per se for them. I mean, they had the whole, the whole world was, uh, they could uh, um, teach you know, in regards to anywhere. And they worked miracles. So their successors, though, not necessarily were given these very special gifts. Um, but they received ordinary power and ordinary jurisdiction as as bishops and priests. And they didn't necessarily receive the extraordinary power or the, the personal gifts um, of, the, uh, of the apostles, uh, but yet the apostles, as the same, were bishops and priests, uh, and just as their successors are. Again, you, you know, the, as, as uh, we look at, you see the, the beginnings of the church as well, a lot of things that the apostles could do um, which were extraordinary to maybe their successors, is that our Lord did that for a, for a reason, is to be able to begin to spread by the apostles themselves the church far and wide in in a very well, almost like a, um, a wildfire sort of way. Um, and so the apostles were given certain things, uh, certain uh, um, gifts to facilitate that. So the apostles in themselves were a, you can say, a special class, I guess, um, with, uh, but yet a class that is not uh, at least part of that um, has certainly been and always will be handed on to their successors. So you mentioned that they had new revelations, they had the gift of tongues, they had the power of working miracles, and you, they had ordinary jurisdiction uh, universally. They, they, they didn't have their own diocese. They, they, they got to go where, where they wanted. Now, were in, in a way you you look at those extraordinary gifts, but you also have to realize this did not impair their successors. I, I don't, I, you know, it's it's sort of weird for me to say, Father. You know, it's nice that they could work miracles, but it, it's okay if your local bishop isn't capable of working miracles. Um, uh, that that's not going <laughs> to stop him from doing his job, right? Because you know, what are we uh, again? The 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 ordinary powers of the uh, bishops, priests, um, are the same as the powers of the apostles. And so, you know, we have the power to consect uh, the Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and the beauty of our Lord. We have the power to forgive sin. Um, you know, these are, these are the things um, that you can say are the, the, I don't want to make it sound crass, but kind of the, 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 the meat and potatoes of, of salvation there, that that's, you know, those are the things that are, are which all priests and bishops, of course, uh, true priests and bishops have. And so, um, it, it, you know, they, uh, um, it's not, again, as if somehow uh, we are 
um, not um, capable to carry up carry uh, out the mission of Christ uh, of our Lord in the world, and we are because we have the same ordinary powers that the apostles had, and so yeah, it's nice, you know. I mean, certainly there have been saints who have um, been uh, uh, granted with the ability to work some miracles. Uh, but they in themselves are not the ordinary. That is outside of the ordinary. Um, you know, the ordinary powers of, of the bishop and the priests are the ones that are able to to rule, to sanctify, uh, to govern, uh, you know, the church. Um, and so, yeah, it'd be nice to be able to work miracles, I suppose you can say, but um, you have to look at even the ordinary powers of the priests and the, uh, the bishops and the priests is that what greater miracle is there that every day at the altar, you call down God upon the altar, and you can hold them in your hand. That in of itself, even that, so to speak, ordinary power of the priest is in of itself uh, um, almost almost imagine, in, in, uh, unimaginable. It, it, it is really wondrous, Father. I, I, w- I was going to remark that uh, you might uh, think it w- would make your job easier if you were able to work miracles, right? You wouldn't have to worry about the collection basket or uh, who's going to help with cleanup on the weekend, right? Yeah, sure. That'd be. That sometimes would be. Uh, we can we can uh, daydream occasionally for a brief moment, but then we get back into reality. <laughs> you, you wouldn't refuse any extraordinary gifts offered to you, is what your mother? Um, no, not if, uh, as long as I have the grace to use them wisely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to move on to chapter four. Pages starts this chapter by noting that it's it's important to have the apostolic succession. But without the apostolic succession, we can faith that is universal or one. Can you clarify what we mean when we say universal and when, what we say when we say one? Right. Well, when the, um, Monsignor uh, does, he gives a definition of the universality of faith. Uh, and he says, the definition he uses is very good. It says, the presenting of the same revelation to all men in all ages and places according to their intelligence. In other words, to, to believe, present things to believe without error. Um, and with the unity of faith, is uniformity of belief and profession, which is identical in every member of the church, uh, in every member of the church. And so it is, implicitly then the same in all the faithful. So in other words, you can take, um, uh, when you have the, the, uh, the living magisterium then to govern, uh, faith then can be uh, universal in one. In other words, you can go to, even in the most the simplest of men, say in the darkest corner of the world, who's ignorant of that, but yet under, is a Catholic, understands uh, at least you know, fundamental rudiments of the Catholic faith, and uh, uh, they are 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 uh, implicitly then believing in union and, and unity of faith, the same as say even the greatest of theologians of the Catholic Church. Um, so, you know, it is uh, um, is where our Lord, you know, reminds us, and I think I had made a, even a note that uh, our Lord started a church, um, not churches. And so when you have a church that you then have a unity then, which is there, who those who are in union with that church then are, then it's universal as one. And so, you know, it's the Protestants are very good at, you know, kind of skewing things and, and saying um, that, uh, you know, we, you know, we have the church, what have you, but uh, you look at Protestants and they don't believe that even hardly the same things amongst them themselves. And so there's many different church as with them, um, but there's only one church, one Catholic church. And so, um, you know, that's what's uh, to be universal and to be one is, is, is to have, uh, again, the, it's presenting the same faith, the same revelation to all men. It's, there's no changes to it. There's no error to it. Uh, and then the unity then of faith is, the, is that unity of belief uh, and, and profession of that faith. Um, in every member of the church. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's not as if we, you know, can believe and do what we want or think what we want, um, you know, or make things up because we don't have to, because we have this uh, universal and one um, faith church. 
There are a couple beautiful quotes in, in this chapter. The, the first is on page 53. He says, every century has brought forth its peculiar error against the church. So today, under the cloak of religious unity, heresy demands a backdoor entrance into the Catholic Church. And I just had to check again when I was reading this, Father. This book was written in 1928, right? Not, not 2016. <laughs> yeah. 2016. Um, and uh, I'll follow on to that on page 54. One denial, one reverse, one compromise on dogmatic truths asserted by former popes or by the present pope is the end of the Catholic Church. And I thought those two quotes together really drove home that, uh, that, that idea. And he uses this as the beginning of a defense of Mortalium Animos, um, which was published in the same year that the book came out. And it seemed like, uh, from the way Monsignor was talking about it, that the, book, that the encyclical came under a lot of attack. We know that from reading the historical record. But, you know, we think that the we think about the good old days or we think, oh, yes, that's back when people respected God and, and respected religion. But in the 1920s, people were mocking these ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. no, it wasn't necessarily the good old days at all. No, I mean, the church, uh, there's always been, from the time of our Lord until this very day, there's always been mockers and scoffers and, and uh, impious uh, men and women who, you know, their desire is to to destroy the Catholic Church, which is ultimately the desire to, to destroy Christ, which is ultimately, of course, to, to dethrone God uh, as the um, supreme authority to which they must submit to. Um, so, you know, it is, it is, it is, as, it, as Scripture says, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, you know, it's, this has always been the case uh, against the Church. Obviously, Monsignor started this chapter by talking about the unicity and the universality of the church, and he brings the argument back around to discuss to discuss Protestants, and he brings up the, the quote of one fold and one shepherd, and he explains that that Protestants argue that that one fold, the allusion to one fold and one shepherd, is a wish of our Lord that has never been attained. Uh, can you? Can you explain that a bit for us, Father? Well, that's the one, one of the ones that uh, I, when I hear Protestants say that, I cringe in a certain sense, uh, because uh, so our Lord uh, is just, um, it's just wishful thinking that he instituted something. And uh, he didn't, what they're ultimately saying is that our Lord really didn't have the power then to uh, enforce or to do what he uh, had started in a perfect way. And, and so they're denying really ultimately our Lord's, ultimately God's omnipotence and omniscience. And so, so I kind of cringe when Protestants begin to kind of say that, that somehow, you know, that's, um, because what they're trying to do is make it subjective. It's, uh, they're trying to, um, um, you know, make it seem as though, um, that there's a constant then, uh, okay for them to what they're doing rather than a submission to the one church, the one true church. And so they're trying to say that somehow there's this general church or general fold or general, in a sense, shepherd that somehow we're all to be a part of eventually someday. But, um, you know, uh, if that was true, then I think our Lord would have said that. Um, but no, he's, he says there's one fold, one shepherd, there's one church, one faith. So, but I like the, the quotes from uh, um, on page 54 and, and 55, or, um, which actually you, you quoted part of it, and it says that, you know, not all who profess themselves Christians are in agreement. Uh, the authors of the plan for the confederation of all Christian churches believe that Christ's words, one fold and one shepherd, only express, again, a desire and a prayer of Christ Jesus that has been thus far unanswered. They contend that the unity of faith and government, which is the sign of the true and only Church of Christ, has almost never existed up to this time and does not exist today. It can be desired, and perhaps in the future it can be obtained through general goodwill, but meanwhile it must be considered a fiction. They say, moreover, that the Church by its very nature is divided into parts, that it consists of many churches or particular communities which are separated among themselves. And although they have certain points of doctrine in common, they differ in others that in each enjoys the same rights, that at most the church, the Catholic church, was the one and only church 
between the apostolic era, era and the first ecumenical councils. There are some among them who assume and grant that Protestantism has rejected inadvisedly certain articles of faith and certain external rites of worship, which are fully acceptable and useful, and which the Roman Church still preserves. But they add immediately that the Church has corrupted the early religion by adding to it and by proposing for belief certain doctrines that are not only foreign to, but are opposed to the gospel among which they bring forward chiefly that of the primacy of jurisdiction assigned to Peter and its successors of the Roman See. On um, such conditions, it is clear that the Apostolic See cannot in any way participate in the reunion and that Catholics cannot in any way adhere or grant aid to such efforts. If that would happen, it would give authority to a false Christian religion completely foreign to the one Church of Christ. Could we tolerate an iniquitous attempt to drag the truth and indeed the divinely revealed truth to the level of bargains? For it is the safeguarding of revealed truth now that it now that is being considered. So, you know, it's a reminder that false premise that the Protestants do come up with all the time. And by the way, the Nomus Order does too. That the truth is somehow already it's to be explored yet, or it's to be discovered yet. It's somehow that uh, you know that uh, that it is. Uh, through the common will of man, of man himself, to formulate some truth, uh, a common truth. Well, again, that goes right in the face of revelation. I mean, uh, otherwise, uh, I mean, our Lord has been just a cruel God by just uh, letting our, ourselves to our own devices and saying, well, I hope you guys figure this out. I hope you guys, you know, just uh, uh, figure out what the truth is and Boy, but uh, what a cruel God he would be if, if uh, he would just uh, have said that. But no, he, we have the truth. We have it um, given to the apostles in, in divine revelation. We have it in, of course, scripture and tradition. We have it uh, already given to us in the Catholic Church, period. Um, and anything outside then, any sort of ecumenical, which you see in Vatican II and all that, is, is all, uh, has always been condemned. Uh, by the church, because again, the premise is that somehow that truth is yet to be discovered. If we follow that a bit further, I, I know in in your neck of the woods, uh, Father, that they call sacred scripture the Bible, and mm-hmm. and why is the Bible not enough to guarantee mm-hmm. the universality of faith? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, uh, it's it's uh, it's the same kind of. Um, uh, very simple uh, explanation that you know we always give, but you know the Protestants really don't want to hear. But you know they'll say right that somehow you know by reading the scripture you know um, all God's truths that are, are are contained in the scriptures and 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 they'll insist that yeah sure that is and then you know that we can't believe anything which is not found in the scriptures. Well, in the what fifteen sixteen hundred years of of Christianity, you know, reading uh, and 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 writing, as Monsignor points out too, reading and writing was was confined really only to a few. I mean, there it wasn't as if everyone was able to not only get their hands upon Scripture, uh, but not not even that, but even read uh, Scripture. So, in the Protestants' kind of well warped understanding, is that um, you know, they say you, it's the Bible, we're saved, it's through the Bible, it's through the Bible, it's through scriptures. Well, what about those who never had access to it or those who cannot read or, you know, it wasn't until, you know, the, the printing press where there was able to mass market in the sense, you know, the Bible, you know, it was very rare that one could even have one uh, amongst themselves. So how then were people saved if they didn't have um, the um Scripture, and not only that, then how could they learn and judge then all those and truths that are in Scripture itself without having some teachers, uh, responsible teachers, who would guide them away from error? As you can see in here, I mean, I can I can drive down the road here, and within one block you can count five different Baptist churches, um, and they all teach different thing. Uh, and they'll take a, some scripture and each one of their preachers will expound on it in a totally different way. 
And so how could that be? I mean, in regards to, uh, you know, with, uh, kind of, with teaching things that are, are contrary to each other. Um, so it is, it is, uh, you know, who's the, uh, how can the Holy ghost then enlighten the mind of the faithful on the same subject and in opposite directions? You know, it is, it is, uh, uh, interesting, you know, when, and, and when you kind of just on a very basic level, expand that or, or expound that to the Protestants and say how, you know, how scriptures, you know, if people didn't have access to scriptures, how then could they be saved? And I mean, they'll sputter with some answers, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, um, you know, they, cause they don't want to come to the, the conclusion or say the conclusion, which actually truthfully, probably some of them really understand is that they had, there was a church, there was the preachers, there, there were guidance that was teaching the people, um, these truths, um, which, uh, and so, uh, yes, in the, in the Bible belt here, we have all sorts of, uh, interesting things that they'll, uh, come across and trying to, uh, uh, put forth as, you know, the truth. In section three of mm-hmm. chapter four, Monsignor Aegis talks about a couple things I don't think we normally think about. I think scripture is the immediate argument. He, he then says, there's also the issue of immediate revelation and scientific demonstration, and that also uh, cannot guarantee universality of faith. What do we mean by immediate revelation or scientific demonstration? Right. It's, uh, uh, if you look at the, the uh, immediate revelation, which Monsignor found that the immediate revelation is made to, to single individuals, and scientific demonstration is the manner in which one may be convinced by arguments of the truths of the Christian religion. But he reminds us uh, that both of those, though, lack um, a universality to them. In other words, they, they you know, cannot reach the, the great mass of the faithful. And so, you, like with immediate revelation, you can, you can point to some um, maybe revelations, say, of saints some, um, who have... Um, um, has been granted to some um, that, uh, you know, like an, a, some sort of vision that they may have had. Well, that's, you know, calls that are kind of rare, but yet um, uh, they uh, it cannot then can be expounded, say, to necessarily to the universal church. Um, so it could be a revelation for maybe them specifically or them uh, in, gen- or, or in a certain area, maybe, or um, what have you. So it doesn't have the universality then uh, for um, the, the whole church. But as Monsignor says, the scientific demonstration um, you know, should compromise not only the possibility and the fact of revelation, but also all the truths, precepts, and institutions of the religion of Christ, as well as the true and infallible sense of the scriptures. So all those things should be shown, you know, to every man and woman, not through the authority of the church, but through um, human reason, persuasion, and conviction. So to solve the problem of arriving at the church, um, to solve the problem of arriving at truth, um, you have to have an infallible authority. Um, You know, you can't necessarily rely upon just one person or one, uh, even on just necessarily and solely on human reason. So the authority, this authority, infallible authority, then can make no mistakes then in matters of faith. Um, so the authority of man by himself is always uh, human and it's always fallible. But in matters of, that that are of the most um, of of the most importance is that you know we we need an infallible authority. And certainly there are. Learned men, as as Martin Singer says, within the church itself, who are able to listen to this, but it is always the authority of the church uh, which uh, is the final say. This authority it can make no mistakes at all in matters of faith. Um, so, without say the authority uh, and direction of this infallible teaching body, then any sort of universality of faith is, is gone. Um, so, you know, you need. You need a, a, a infallible uh, authority uh, to be able to take infallible truth, of course, and to guard it, preserve it, but to disseminate it or to at least to, to teach it uh, infallibly, then 
to uh, the church's children. And so, again, uh, this is why Monsignor Wise prefaced this, at least way back in a uh, couple of chapters ago, when he says that the mark of the, the church uh, is the authority and, and, and obedience. Uh, in section five of this chapter, Father, there's this devastating quote from Luther, and I, I think I've read this before, but you know, you read it again, it's just remarkable. He says, he's writing to Zwingli, a, another one of these so-called reformers, if the world will last much longer, on account of the different interpretations of the scriptures that now exist, in order to keep the unity of faith, it will be again necessary to receive the decrees of councils and to have recourse to them. So Luther understood the idea of the unity of faith, and he realized what was going on would destroy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, uh, uh, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, maybe he was given an actual grace uh, after he, he, he saw the absolute devastation and revolution that he was responsible for. Um, that, you know, maybe had a little flash of light saying, oh, what have I done in a certain sense? Um, and, and, but, you know, uh, actually, one senior, I'll just actually read from, I'll just continue actually reading because I thought this was really, really good of what he, he wrote. He said, fair-minded Protestants are obliged to recognize two Luthers, one before the year 1525 or before the Great Rebe- Rebellion in Germany, the other after the year 1525. The first Luther, by breaking with the authority of the church, told the people that every Christian is taught of God. The second Luther, seeing the great divisions which began to spread within his own ranks in order to keep some unity and coherency among his followers, declared that the ecclesiastical teaching body, having been instituted by God, has for its source Christ himself as well as his mandate institution. It's almost like um, Luther is first and foremost rejecting the authority of the church. And then after seeing the devastation that he has caused because of that, somehow trying to get that authority back to himself and wishing that he could have it back, uh, wishing he could have it back. But it's uh, the, the Pandora's box is open and there's, uh, you know, there's no way that that could happen. And, and so, you know, you see, uh, um, you know, Luther just, uh, a certain sense, uh, you know, first rejection of authority. And then after seeing the devastation of that, now wanting that authority back, but the people don't. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, he created his Frankenstein and, uh, he, you know, he can't, uh, take it back. And so, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why too Luther, I mean, there's no, uh, I'm sure you have a special place in hell for him uh, for what he, you know, what he's uh, created. As I, I'm reading these things, uh, reading this book again, I cannot help, as I'm sure you do too, as, as almost nearly every page is a condemnation of the Novus Ordo. I mean, every, almost every page you read and you read is like, oh, this is exactly what the Novus Ordo has, is, has been doing. And, um, it's uh, amazing that they are, are uh, it's almost as if Monsignor uh, is writing um, as a condemnation of the Novus Ordo. It's interesting. He continues down this line of argument to, to conclude quite interestingly. And again, it's something we may not have thought of before. But if, if, if we exclude, if we follow the Protestant argument that the Catholic Church can't be true church, well, it would follow then that there would be one Protestant church, not that right. they're in possession of the truth and the Catholic church is the wayward, crazy one. Then there would be right. one Protestant church. It makes some kind of sense, but there isn't even that, that the, the splinter groups, as we know, the, uh, I, I, I probably seen this chart, Father, that all of the, if you are a Lutheran, your church was started by, so in this year, mm-hmm. this, this chart. You know, and if you're right. your church was started by, by Jesus Christ in the year 33. And, you know, that, that argument uh, I had never really thought of, that there would be one Protestant church. That I think that would be something that would make sense to them. Uh, but mm-hmm. obviously, it's not hear about very often. Right. I mean, like I said, you can always point to um, each Protestant church, like you said, is, is splintered into just, you know, like I said, even down here, I mean, you can... 
you have some strange names for, uh, you know, you have the Unity Church, and then you have the People's Church, and then you have uh, Truth Church, and I mean, just it's just amazing how uh, they are so splintered, which is a sure sign then that somehow, then what ultimately what they're saying, because they all claim that you know, oh, the the, the Holy Spirit, you know, is 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 we're, we're in me, and I'm teaching the Holy Spirit, or I'm preaching because of the Holy Spirit, etc. Well. Then ultimately, then what they're saying is then again a very blasphemous thing that somehow then the Holy Ghost is then a liar because how could the Holy Ghost, who is truth itself, of course, being God, then say something different to where in each of these different Protestant sects on, on the same thing of, of matters of truth? And so, somebody then you know, either, either the Holy Ghost is wrong. Or Protestants are wrong. And, you know, I, I think it, when you kind of put it the Protestant that way, of course, they'll be very um, defensive, but it's, that's the truth. Is that either, either the Protestants are wrong or God is wrong. And I, I'll, I'll stay on the side of God uh, with that. <laughs> I'll say that he, he's correct. He's correct and the Protestants are wrong. <laughs> we want to remind our listeners that you are listening to Tradition and the Church on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and I'm joined by Father Michael Oswald. Today, we've been discussing the universality and unicity of the faith in contradiction to various uh, arguments of Protestants. Uh, we've talked about the, the extraordinary gifts of the apostles uh, and what they weren't able to pass on to their successors. But we've also talked about those successors being part of a perpetual apostolic succession, which is absolutely necessary in the government of the church, which was designed uh, specifically by our Lord for us. You mentioned, Father, that this the book gets technical at times, and, and this was one of the ways that uh, it got technical for me. I thought he, Father uh, Monsignor Aegis actually goes and uh, breaks down two types of Protestants. He says there are rationalists and there are fundamentalists. So what do we mean uh, by rationalist Protestants? Well, what uh, Monsignor uh, defines then um, is uh, of those two classes. Um, he says those who have retained the fundamental principle of private judgment and those who then seeing the, the consequences of that have set up some sort of authority. Um, in other words, so the, the private judgments then are, as Monsignor says, are, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, says they are genuine Protestants. Um, and, and they're the more numerous uh, because they, they practically deny that the scriptures are, are, are really the only rule of faith, and they affirm that one is perfectly then free to follow the scriptures or only a part of them according to his own view and always in the, in the way he understands it to be true. So these are the, the, the rationalists, he says. Um, and, uh, you know, those are, that's always, and, and I'm glad Monsignor does point this out too, he says uh, that these, uh, that principle of private judgment which just Protestants hold to is that it always paves the way to unbelief. It always paves the way, you know, there's a direct line almost between Protestantism to modernism and all that comes with it right to atheism. Um, and so um, that's what he means by the, the uh, first class of Protestants, the rationalists. And, and then he says that they're uh, distinguished then uh, modernists, as he calls them, or fundamentalists. And the modernists follow then the dictates of their private judgment, enlightened as they claim and inspired by the Holy Ghost. Um, and so the fundamentalists then believe in and are bound by their, quote, creed based on the scriptures. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very much, I guess you can say, uh, um, that you have, well, really, ultimately, uh, either one kind of a, a, a some of the, the Protestants were set up who have some sort of structural, at least uh, authorita authoritarian kind of structure, like um, you can say the uh, uh, Episcopalians or the, uh, um, you know, some, maybe some of the Lutherans, you know, who have, you know, they have some sort of uh, governing body that they try to um, set up, you know, some sort of order in that regards, a hierarchy. Um, whereas you have others, 
other Protestants, uh, you know, who have, they're more free. And, and so basically whatever preacher is at that church, um, you know, they may have a loose association with some others, but, you know, they're kind of the it. And, but they all hold to the same tenets, uh, really ultimately of private uh, interpretation. But with the one who tries to have some sort of hierarchy, they have private interpretation with a caveat, you know, that you may have private interpretation, but, you know, you still have to abide by this authority, um, which is an oxymoron in and of itself. You know, that's, I think that's what Muncie was kind of basically just trying to break it down uh, in, in, in a very uh, simple way. But it, it, he says, you know, the same thing is that it, he says one contradiction upon another. It says that no wonder that many Protestants who do not belong to the old or the Reformed Lutherans have many times declared that they would rather follow a more holy tradition and more spiritual pontiff of the Catholic Church than those tables of stones which do not have which do not have their origin from Mount Sinai. In other words, Monsignor is reminding that basically whatever they say, it's all just contradictions. It's just it's almost like they want. As the saying goes, uh, you know, they want your cake and eat it too, but yet, you know, it's just, it's an impossibility and it's, uh, it leads to nothing but fractures and schism and all that sort of thing. And, and just, just all sorts of, well, craziness, so to speak. And, well, and I, I think it's, you, you locked onto something that was interesting to me too, is with, these are the genuine Protestants, right? So yeah. these, these are, at least, you know, they're not pretending you know, to follow any kind of authority. They're their own authority. That's what they're they're protesting the church. They're the real Protestants. You people, you set up your own fake authority, right? So you're, you're not saying that you uh, protest authority. You just don't like the Catholic church's authority, but you clearly have your own. And, Mm -hmm. and I see these as analogous for the Novus Ordo and the recognize and resist, right? So the Novus Ordo are sort of like these genuine Protestants. You know, they're, they say they're right. Catholic, but, you know, the, the mm-hmm. church says, you know, homosexuality is bad. Well, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's an outdated teaching. I don't really need right. to go to confession. Uh, and mm-hmm. the, the fundamentalists are like the SSPX, where it's like, well, we, we like authority. We just like our authority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just got to right. make sure we read every encyclical for you ahead of time, and we'll tell right. you whether it's good or not. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah Monsignor Aegis was, was writing for our times, I think. Absolutely. And, and you're right as in regards to the, the you know, the Mosordo, as you see, of course, in, in the latest uh, Bergoglio uh, rant uh, in regards to his writings of, of, you know, which has always been is that conscience, one individual conscience is king. You know, it, it takes precedence over anything. Uh, so, you know, you're right. For you, it's basically private interpretation. And and you're right. And, the, and then recognize there's this crowd and, you know, the SSGX and that, and the, the, you know, they uh, they want their private interpretation, but only in the hands of themselves. Uh, not, you know, and you must follow kind of their way of what they think is the church. And, and so you're right. Monsignor, I think, uh, like I said, every time I turn the page and I'm reading this, rereading this, it's, uh, you know, well, that's, that's just an illustrator right there. Or, well, that's, uh, you know, people would just read this, you know, they would think, you know, they would see it more clearly, but, you know, and that's, uh, that's one of the great things too, why, you know, we're helping to facilitate this so people can go out and buy the book and, and, uh, you know, read it and, and uh, begin to really see and understand it more clearly. There's a there's a beautiful final quote I want to share with our our listeners as we end today's episode, Father. But before that, I, I just wanted to ask if there were any reflections or stories pertaining to the material that we covered in today's episode that revisiting this material brought out for you. Other than the sure fact that I mentioned, like I just said before, is that uh, you know I I uh, reading this it, it's is uh, I'm always um, surprised even at myself sometimes of how the Novus Ordo and even the Protestant way of thinking as well um, has uh, obscured the truth of things uh, to the point where it even affects, you know, us, all of us in, in a certain way. And so we always have to be on guard and, and understand this is why, you know, we, as Catholics, we always have to continue to study our faith and that because, um, you know, a lot of these things, again, we're talking about private interpretation and, and conscience and things of that nature. I mean, that all can sound very seductive at times, uh, um, but, you know, and, or as far as, uh, um, 
you know, where the situation we're living in today in regards, you know, to us uh, of Kansas and that's, you know, is that for some Sadek Kansas is that they, they can look at the state of the church today, at the state of the world, and somehow, you know, they can almost be driven to despair. Uh, but you always have to remind, you know, this is why this, that you study and look at these things and say, no, wait a minute, no, our Lord says, this he's going to be with us and he set this up per, this way perfectly etc and certainly there are times in the history of the church where there was very grand difficulties in that but yet the structure everything had remained the same as it is still to this very day um and so uh you know we again that's where we fall into you know we we, we look at the authority uh, of our uh, which is given to us uh, or which is given by uh, christ himself uh, to the holy catholic church and we are obedient to that because we know that that then is true, good, and perfect. Well, and with that, I'll, I'll read this, this quote from page 76. The essential principle of divine tradition is the perpetual and infallible keeping of the true sense and of the true understanding of the deposit of faith by an ever-living apostolic succession. And that's just a, a real gift that we have as Catholics. We shouldn't take it for granted. and. Uh, before we close today's episode, Father, I just wanted to ask you what's going on uh, down in your neck of the woods. Uh, I, Jason was remarking the other day how much he enjoys celebrating Ascension Thursday on Ascension Thursday, <laughs> as opposed to uh, what the Novus Ordo does. So I, I thought you might like appre- you might appreciate as a escapee of the uh, the Novus Ordo sect uh, the ability to celebrate Ascension Thursday on Ascension Thursday as well. Oh, I know. Isn't it amazing how even numbers, you know, 40 days, I mean, it means all those numbers mean something. <laughs> and, to, you know, so, yeah, so it's when you preach on, the, you know, like in the Novus Ordo, you'd have to preach sometimes on the Ascension, you know, uh, uh, you're doing it on Sunday. Well, it's a couple days later that it really was, you know, so we have to kind of think. <laughs> how are things, how are things going uh, uh, at church? Uh, very well. We're, um, you know, we're, we're, uh, uh, I'm busy. I, I, uh, I'm really, uh, in, uh, about six states in regards to I have little missions in other states as well. And which are starting to grow slowly. Um, um, but nonetheless, we're, we're getting people, we're going to have, uh, um, confirmations here at the end of July. And so, and plus I'm going to have about three, uh, three or four people who are going to be coming into the Catholic church, um, from either the Novus Ordo or from Protestantism as well. So we're growing here or there, and, and uh, there's always work to be done. But, uh, yeah, it's, It'd be nice, of course, as, as I always remind people, it's not, we, we can't look at numbers. You know, it's not, it's about, we're looking at, it's, it's about, not about quantity per se. I would always be nice, but we're, you know, it's, it's quality we're looking at. And uh, so, but it'd be nice to have, you know, a parish that has, you know, a thousand people, well, that'd be a wonderful thing. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we live in the times we live in and, uh, but we, we know that, that people of goodwill are still out there and that, uh, you know, it's, uh, bringing them into the truth, into the true Catholic faith, uh, is always, a, a grand work of the Holy ghost and, and, uh, something that myself, uh, I'm always humbled to be the, the instrument to do so. Well, we're excited, and we'll keep those uh, coming converts to the faith in our prayers, Father. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions, that's with an S, at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that Tradition in the Church is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I'm Stephen Heiner. 